Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the current laureate for Irish fiction, Sebastian Barry, talks about his recent novels, Days Without End and A Thousand Moons. Sebastian Barry was born in Dublin in 1955. The current laureate for Irish fiction, his novels have twice won the Costa Book of the Year Award, the Independent Booksellers Award and the Walter Scott Prize. And he had two consecutive novels shortlisted with the Man Booker Prize, A Long, Long Way and the top 10 bestseller, The Secret Scripture. He's also won the Kerry Group Irish Fiction Prize, the Irish Book Awards Novel of the Year and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize. And today we're going to, in the main, be talking about Sebastian's latest novel, A Thousand Moons. Sebastian, welcome to Little Atoms. How wonderful to be talking to you. So normally the first thing I say when we're talking about fiction is to the author, how would you describe this novel? But this novel being, first of all, a direct sequel to your previous novel, Days Without End, but more than that, it's the next strand in a thread that's sort of weaved its way all exactly. the way through your fiction. So yeah. instead, I'm going to say, Sebastian, how would you describe your entire fiction project? Well, it's, it's an accidental project, maybe. I mean, you couldn't accidentally climb Kilimanjaro, I suppose, unless you really got lost. But um, in the world of fiction, you can find yourself on very strange unexpected lower slopes, middle slopes, upper slopes of things. And I don't, I wrote the first book of these probably 25 years ago, The Whereabouts of Venice McNulty. And I don't know if I thought there was anything else after that, but mysteriously they appeared one after the other. I, I'm kind of in favor of unplanned things like that, but they all talk to each other. I was alarmed, I think, when the word sequel was used. I was doing an interview on the radio with Graham Norton, who is, you know, another Irish writer as well as everything else that he is, a very good writer. And he, um, he said, I didn't know you were a sequels guy. I thought, oh, my God, am I a sequels guy? This isn't good news. Because actually, the way I see the book, A Thousand Moons, in relation to A Days Without End, is more in the... This is an old rectory here, and we have a room called the bishop's bedroom where allegedly the bishop would have to sleep when he visited anyway. On the wall of that room, is a big painting that I got, not forged, but repainted cheaply in China, you know, on the internet. It's a huge painting by Arshila Gorky, the New York painter. He was originally Armenian. His mother was killed in the Armenian genocide, Turkish genocide of Armenians. 
And he got to America and all he had was a photograph, little torn photograph of himself and his mother. That's all that remained. And he painted this enormous picture of him with her from the photograph. And that's the way I see A Thousand Moons and Days of That End, like a Madonna and child, really. A Thomas McNulty is Madonna in that, or the mother in that picture. And the boy standing there, as he does in Arshila Gorky's picture, is Winona, this adopted daughter or this accidental daughter. And that, that's how I see the relationship. But it also bears very much relationship to other books of the age, because, for instance, there was a book called A Long, Long Way that uh, was about Willie Dunn going to the First World War as an Irish, young Irish person. He's only 17. And that was the four years of the war. And then the following book was a book called Annie Dunn, which was about a sister of his who never went anywhere. So this was the tiny little minimalist book about the infinitely small things in her life that she that represented her life. And similarly, I think A Thousand Moons very much is related to Annie Dunn in the sense that Days Without End could be loosely called quite an epic book and that they certainly go on very long journeys. But A Thousand Moons is confined to Paris, Tennessee very much and the concerns of a 17-year-old young Lakota woman. You know, I don't see it as a sequel, as you very helpfully say, they're all interrelated and each talks and sometimes refuses to talk to each other of the other books. Well, they're, they're all concerned with members of your family, of your, your ancestors. And I've, I've read elsewhere about your own particular upbringing and, and how that was, you know, in some ways rather unusual. And it strikes me that what these particular Days of Our End and, and A Thousand Moons are fundamentally about is you know, the setting up of your own family, a family that's, you know, a non-biological family, a non, perhaps a non-heteronormative family. Yes. Um, but, the, you know, the family that we make rather than the family yes. that is thrust upon us. Yes. Well, by vast coincidence or not, I've just recorded with my son, who is a sound engineer, among many other things, uh, the third lecture is Laureate, which is called The Fogger Family, which is about exactly what you've just said. In fact, you could, you've just summed up the entire lecture. Thank you very much. I was wondering how to do that. Now I know. And yeah, it's that huge difference between the family into which you were a sort of accidental invitee, aren't you? You, you just find yourself among them. But with the second family, you're making it for yourself, uh, or sometimes literally, I mean, flesh and bone with your children. And if you've notice certain things about the way you were brought up that weren't helpful to you as a human being, but may actually, as this lecture tries to get at, may have been extremely helpful to you as a writer to have the fog and the rupture and all the rest of it. But if you've noticed that, then you can maybe specialise as a father, as a parent in not supplying that to your children. And that's what we tried to do, my wife and I anyway, was because I thought the primary responsibility, it seemed to me, of the parent, and whether I succeeded or not in this, I don't know, but was to provide a site of safety to your children, which is what we didn't have as, as children, really, my sister and myself. Similarly, Winona in A Thousand Moons has been provided after a huge rupture and chaos and catastrophe and the loss of her entire people with a sort of site of safety, but the safety is always under attack. It's always being torn up by the, you know, the violent hand of history, this sort of uncaring, snatching, machismo-driven claw of history. And that's what she has to contend with. And the book is really about, in that sense, her courage and the, in the face of that. And the, the motto for the book is from Seneca, sometimes even to live is an act of courage, which I think applies to a lot of 
the sort of history we think about and concern ourselves with, you know, on a moral basis. Not only, of course, is this family in A Thousand Moons in danger from the present, from, you know, the ever-present dangers around them, but of course the irony is that Thomas McNulty and John Cole were both present and, you know, active participants in the the destruction of, of her family. Yeah. And I mean, one of the strange enabling factors to write Days Without End and how any book ever gets written is beyond me still, is we had a we had a dog here a few years ago, a very beautiful dog. We still have five dogs. But anyway, this dog got into big trouble because he killed he killed five or six lambs who had just been put into the field. And when I got to him, because we're in sheep country here in Wicklow, when I got to him, we saw it was with my son, actually. We saw way across the farms the black speck of his racing around this field. He was a big dog, but in the distance, he was small. And when we got to him, I knew he was doomed. You know, we were going to have to put him down. There was no way we couldn't not put him down because you can't give on a dog like that because you're just giving trouble to somebody else. And we adored this dog. He was very young, but he wasn't finished. I took him out of the field with all the dead lambs. He was literally trembling with joy. And when I put him in the car, he was desperate to get back out. He, he was exulting in the violence of it. And that was something that I noted and sort of thought Thomas must have to survive being a soldier in the American army during those years. That sometimes when he's killing, he's describing a feeling of total happiness. And you get that also in the old Irish tales of Cúchulainn, where he has his battle frenzy. It's described in some of these tales where his head is spinning around and there's fire coming out of his ears and mouth. And, and he's bigger than he seems and he's slewing all about him. That's like naked warfare, you know, like naked battle. So he's not only responsible, and John too, because they're both in the army. They're not only responsible, but in some sort of, could be distressing way, they've exulted in what they have done. And yet there's this other part of them, those two men, that adores Winona. They take her initially as a servant. And indeed the, the wife of the commanding officer in the fort thinks they have some other intention towards her. But Thomas is able to be very clear that he doesn't. And they take her as a servant, but she soon is transmuted by just the glorious, radiant person she is into a daughter. And, you know, they, they love each other equally. But yes, with that, with that behind me. So I don't treat these as books, I have to say, Neil. I treat them as true things. When you say my, um, you know, I've written about members of my family, I've actually invented them, to be honest. And Thomas McNulty, all I knew was that my, because my grandfather told me once, one cold night in the bed, that I had an uncle, or he had an uncle who was at the Indian Wars. That's all he ever said about him. So it took 50 years to make him up, as it were. And it's the same really for every book, except maybe Annie Don and maybe The Temporary Gentleman, because I knew those two people very, very well, maybe too well for the purposes of a novelist. So literally my next question was going to be, what do we actually know of the of the real Thomas McNulty, or at least, you know, the, the person nothing. in the past that, that these characters Absolutely. are based on. Yeah. Absolutely but, um, nothing. Not even a name. So let's um let's let's just move on from that then. You know, I wanted to talk about, you know, I mean I guess we're talking back to days of our end here, but the world that they, they grow up in, the two the two boys when they first meet, they become these basically female impersonators. Yeah. And then fall in love, as as you, you've already said, they have a, a feeling for each other 
that I guess they can't even really name. But then there is a Thomas has a, a particular experience where he meets or he, he witnesses some Native American uh, braves that are, you know, basically go yeah. between cross-dressing and being warriors. Yeah. So that sort of codifies in him something. I think, well, I mean, I think there's there's probably a, a case to say that Thomas McNulty could be a trans woman, not even, not even just a gay man. Um, so I guess I wanted yeah. to talk about some of those ideas of gender, but also like to what extent this was present in that, in terms of the sort of research you did into this period? In the first place, it is true that, especially prior to European interference and the missionary gaze, as it were, uh, whether that was Protestant or whatever else, it was a very ancient custom and lineage that you could be what they call slightly pejoratively, I think, Burdash or Winkty, which is you would prefer to live like one of the women and do all the women's tasks and this is very much about tasks do all the work around the children and the moving of the camp because sometimes men spend quite a lot of time hunting going to war and then very much be just being in the camp talking about those things while the women we may recognize this while the women did the work but when there was warfare sometimes that very same person if you preferred to wear the clothing of one of the women you, that's how you felt about yourself nevertheless when the war came you might disrobe and put on your male attire and go off to war you know it wasn't something to do with it being effeminate or these useless words that people used to use you know there's an absolute fierceness in it and you see uh, you know i was saying i made them up but at the same time you fashion a lot of things from your own present time and it just happened in the mere happenstance of a family life that, that one of my sons um, at 16 came out. And I was very interested in that. And I wanted to find out what that world was. Also, if I had to protect him in any way, I wanted to be armed with the proper visions of the world. So, you know, he and I sat down, we watched our, our season of, of RuPaul <laughs> to get the gist, you know. And that whole, this is just around the time I was starting the book. It would never have been in the book. Otherwise, I don't think... But I was so impressed by the, the drag queens, some of whom had had really hard lives, you know, like young boxers, and had created this radiance around themselves as this sort of angelic survival tactic, uh, the most amazing beauty being manifested. And uh, that struck me. And then I saw this little photograph, you know, that there isn't one photograph of the Irish famine, which was only after well, in the 1840s, they had invented the camera. But the Civil War and after the Civil War, all that time in America has literally countless photographs. There were a lot of itinerant, as they call photographers, going around the place, not to mention painters. God, there's quite amazing aspect of it, actually. But anyway, there's one photograph. There were two boys dancing, young boys dancing in a saloon. And it's just very ambiguous photographs. There's no captions. You don't know what it is, but you're, you're reading it all the same. And I was looking at it and thinking of me and Toby and, and RuPaul. I think, well... What's that? Now? That looks like work. It's like two boys working, doing something. And then my next thought was, of course, I couldn't put that in the book. That would be wrong. Yeah, that's not going to work. You know, that would be unwise. So naturally, I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> that's more or less where I started. And once I was there, when Thomas is describing John Cole, he said um, the moonlight, you know, when he says the moonlight couldn't flatter him because he was already beautiful. I was very overwhelmed myself writing that. And it was a wonderful thing online i was 
a few years ago, I was looking at it, this young woman on her blog, whatever. And she said, unless I'm loved the way Thomas and John Cole love each other, I'm just not interested anymore. She said. <laughs> and for me, for me, it was like a glorious, I don't know, it was like revelation to me to be able to describe John through the hands of Thomas. That was, it was hugely, almost painfully satisfaction in that, you know. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Sebastian Barry and we're talking about his latest novel, A Thousand Moons. So Sebastian, let's let's talk about Winona for a bit. Winona's a in Days of Our End, she's a young child. In A Thousand Moons, she's she's a, a young woman, a young woman orphaned Native American. And of course, that does raise ideas about, you know, representation, about whether or not one should be writing mm. a book about a, a young Native American woman when one is not themselves a, 
young Native American woman. But indeed, what's going on in this book is not only have you, Sebastian Barry, the author, created this character, Winona, but of course, Thomas McNulty and John Cole themselves have created this character, Winona. Yeah, yeah. that's the point, I think. I mean, I, she, I don't plan books. I mean, some people do, some people don't. Some people have planned them. Sometimes people plan them and go some other way. But I just, in the experience of writing Days Without End, I put my fullest trust in Thomas because every day when I, it's like writing the secret scripture, actually. But every day I come into my workroom, there was something there. He had some something to show me. So as whatever chapter it is, when they encounter Winona initially, she was simply there in the story. Also there in the story, of course, is her uncle caught his horse first, who is a very considerable human being out there on the plains, and also her extended family and all that that is. Now, part of this, I relate to the fact that for a very brief period, I had this completely delightful friendship, accidental, with Peter Matheson, because I had a friend who lived in Bridgehampton, and he lived in Bridgehampton. He had given up his life in some, I mean, he had endangered himself at some point by being very supportive of the Lakota and other tribes in the 70s, in the 1970s. You know, the whole stuff in the Dakotas and the Pine Ridge standoff for the FBI and all that, and Leonard Peltier and, and all the all that. And he'd written a book about it called um, In the Spirit of Crazy Horse, which the FBI sued him for. Now, you, you don't mess with the FBI in America. I'm just telling you that in case you're ever thinking of doing it, Neil. The thing you don't do is you don't mess with the FBI at any level. I don't know how Trump got away with it, to be honest. But anyway, he got into big trouble and was being sued for millions. And then 16 years later, he, the judge threw it out 16 years later. And the book was published in paperback by Penguin in the usual way. But Knowing him, I mean, he knew he was, you know, of German extraction or whatever he was, Peter Matheson or, or Dutch, I don't know what he was. He knew he wasn't a native person, but his spirit and his heart and his soul and his brain made an identification with one of the great and probably at that time more hidden factors of American history, which is that it's predicated on dispossession and erasure. And in fact, it would be, in my opinion, Neil, it would be better for the American spirit not to improve it or not to blame it. If they took that on board wholly, then they'd stop this nonsense about making America great again. It would just be a better America. How, let's have a better America that acknowledges its history. Now, that was Peter Matheson all over. And I suppose I took something of that. And also the, now the new realization of what it meant that my great uncle had been at the Indian Wars, a great uncle unnamed. And what does that mean for me? So in a sense, it wasn't, for me, not a, an act of appropriation at all, but of reparation. I was trying to describe somebody so valuable, so radiant, so particular, so individual, so living as Winona, in order to illumine the atrocity that has been committed against her in the sense that she has no, she not only has no civil rights, human rights, she's not even considered to be fully human. You know, a bit like the Irish in Cromwell's eyes, something missing link between man and beast or whatever. But, you know, to describe her in the same impulse to describe Thomas McNulty as possibly a trans person or a person moving between states, actually, because he's more fluid than anything else. And showing, as I had learned from my time with RuPaul, the absolute importance of it, the absolute not something you should tolerate or make excuses for or say, oh, whoa, whoa, is me and the pity of it all. No, something to emulate.
I was trying to put in place a human being like Winona who would be revered by her readers and whose readers would try to emulate her. I wanted to talk about the, you said that, you know, she's basically described as a as a nothing person in the book, um, as indeed Thomas McNulty has described himself in the past. Yeah. And the situation they find themselves in, in Tennessee, part of the South, after the Civil War, I guess the, the beginning into the sort of what they call the Reconstruction Era. And she has this strange legal status. Tell us something about that, what the situation was like there well, at that time and place. She's been, Not just she's so we know, but for, for like Tennyson, there's the freedman who worked yeah, yeah. on the small holding as well. Yeah, and Tennyson is a man who still lives with me. I've, all I've been doing for the last two years is reading about the histories all around Tennyson. And he is uh, in a Thousand Moons. He's, well, in Days of Our End, he's recently freed by just by the, the 1865 Act. And of course, not really freedom at all, as we know, but. I mean, she's she's fortunate in the sense that she is taken on as a worker by the lawyer Briscoe. So he is uh, quite well versed in these matters of legal status of people. And when she goes, it's the scene I might be most proud of in the book. It's probably not even a scene anyone else would notice. But she goes to him because she has suffered a rape and she wants to know what justice she can get. And he's says at some dry length that, you know, that she actually, her status in Tennessee, having been taken off the plains in a war setting, is prisoner of war at best, but not a prisoner of war that has any citizenship. You know, and citizenship didn't come, I think it was at 1925, whether that was a blessing or not, you might ask, of America for Native people. So she literally, it's not a crime, it's not a crime to rape her. It's not a crime to kill her. It's not a crime to do anything to her. And if it is a crime to do something to Tennyson at this point, there's no jury or court that would take it up in any sense. I think I've been trying to puzzle out. I mean, to puzzle out the politics of Tennessee is quite difficult because West Tennessee was different to East Tennessee. West Tennessee was very much, you know, of a Confederate mind. So after the war, the Confederate minded person who couldn't bear this version of freedom took to the woods and became, I suppose, in some aspects, the Ku Klux Klan. So it's a very complex history because quite soon with a new governor in the 70s, in the 1870s, everything starts to be reversed. And you might be a sort of a rebel night rider one day, and then you might be put in as a judge the next day. There's something very similar to what Trump was trying to do to the Supreme Court, put in people of his mind. And that, that's been going on forever in America. So then you had, you know, the codes brought in if you didn't own any land or if you didn't work, if you were if you didn't work, you were a vagrant and you could be put to sort of indentured labor. It was just, you know, as a black person, the whole thing is the reconstruction, as you know, I'm sure you agree. The word reconstruction is incredibly misleading. Mm-hmm. for that whole period in America. And look, it doesn't just go from 1865, it goes right up into 1965. It was an unending century of really, you know, you don't even have to be a moral human being. You could even be complicit in it, but you could only uh, understand it as a revolting period of history for any bunch of human beings visiting total destruction of material, mental, on another group of people. And I've, you know, I've been reading a lot of the slave narratives that were recorded in the 1930s and 40s. And the thing you really notice about that is that it is all these years, they were slaves as children. 
and it's all these years later and they're still poorer than the poor. You know, their photographs in the 30s and 40s, it's rags. I mean, it could be Irish people that the talk Phil saw in the 1830s in Ireland, just rags. In Ireland, we used to wear the throw, they used to sell all the top coats, you know, the long tail coats and the top hats into Ireland when everyone else in England had used them up. And so the poor people wore them. And the talkful just said Ireland was like a nation of distressed waiters. You know, it was terrible, terrifying, but wonderful description. And it's similar for certainly this cohort of people who were interviewed in the 1930s. And that's because there was the Great Depression was on and they were trying to give jobs to writers. I mean, how ironic is that? That they would go around interviewing people who had remembered slavery because they'd been children in slavery. Some of these people were in their 90s. This seems to me... In the, on Cana's side, in other of my books, there's a man called Joe Kinderman, who is actually black, but he is presenting as white. He marries Lily, based on my great aunt, and they have children. He, it seems to me, would be the son of Tennyson Bougereau, for instance, where an effort is being made to remove yourself from this terrible site of diminishment. It's not a thing unfamiliar to the Irish spirit, although I'm not drawing a comparison between the sufferings of black slavery and Irish um, experience, because I think it's, you know, the former is much, much worse. But it's still there. There's still a song being sung somewhere in the midst, in the midst of all that. I wanted to ask you what's, um, what's going to be next in this, in this ongoing literary project of yours. And um, I wonder if you're just giving us some sort of tantalising hint. Might we be getting tennis in the college years next? I would so love for Tennyson to be so kind as to come into my little Wicklow workroom here. And if he's able or if he wants to tell me his story, I would be so grateful. In fact, it would be the happenstance of my life if he would do that. Whether he would do that on a next book, I have no idea. I'm actually in that moment where I'm not quite sure. There's three books and I don't know which one will step forward, but it will be a book in relation to the other eight. That's all I know about it. And it's hard at this moment to tell you what that might be. I mean, the, the lecture is about my early childhood. And there is a sense, uh, Roy Foster, the Irish historian, I said to him years ago, I wanted to write about that. And he said, don't write about that. He said, that's your well. That's where you draw your water. But I think he might forgive me. Now I'm at 65 and he's 69 or whatever, you know, if I did that. So I'm not quite sure, Neil, but um, as soon as I know, I'll let you know. God help me. I mean, does anyone ever choose a book to write? I don't know if they do. I think more the book chooses them. Mm-hmm. If Tennyson chooses me, I'm his man. I will <laughs> be the best friend to him that I can be. Let's hope one day then. So can I get you to read us a bit? Yes. And in a way, reading, I'm just going to read the first couple of pages of A Thousand Moons because in a way, you know, the first three words of the book are, I am Winona. And as you pointed out, I, you know, personally, Sebastian Barry, I am not Winona. So I'm already suggesting that I'm not the author of this book, that she is the author of her own book. Anyway, she's going to tell you a little bit about herself, just for the heck of it. I am Winona. In early times, I was Udijinka, which means rose. Thomas McNulty tried very hard to say this name, but he failed. And so he gave me my dead cousin's name because it was easier in his mouth. Winona means firstborn. I was not firstborn. My mother, my elder sister, my cousins, my aunts, all were killed. They were souls of the Lakota that used to live on those old plains. I wasn't too young to remember. Maybe I was six or seven, but all the same, I didn't remember. 
I knew it happened because afterwards the soldiers brought me into the fort and I was an orphan. A little girl can suffer many a sea change. By the time I got back to my people, I couldn't converse with them. I remember sitting in the teepee with the other women and not being able to answer them. By that time, I was all of 13 or so. After a few days, I found the words again. The women rushed forward and embraced me as though I had only just arrived to them that very moment. Only when I spoke our language could they really see me. Then Thomas McNulty came to get me again and took me back to Tennessee. Even when you come out of bloodshed and disaster, in the end, you have got to learn to live. So I've been talking to Sebastian Barry. We've been talking about his latest novel, A Thousand Moons, and so much more. And A Thousand Moons is out now in paperback from Faber. Sebastian, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you. And since we're in the pandemic and we're separated, let me just take the trouble to say you've done a beautiful job, Neil. And thank you very, very much for being so very good at this interviewing thing. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.